nice to be back. I didn't realize till last night that this workshop was listed with just a title and no description. So you might be wondering what's in store. Uh, so a quick uh, overview of how I understand today's workshop. Rather than a more retreat style where we sit, walk, sit, walk with a little bit of instruction and Q&A, the way I've got things sketched out are there will be a, a series of inputs on today's theme from me, generally short, and each will be guide will be paired with one or more guided meditations. And then after each meditation, there will be some debrief conversation. And so we'll, we'll explore the theme of serenity and insight for the sake of liberation through a, a little bit of content based on early Buddhist teachings that I'll try to provide some guided meditations, all of which will be in here Due to the weather forecast, I, I didn't plan on walking meditation today, but instead we'll have some break periods. And uh, so there'll be the guided meditations, which you can do on cushions, on chairs, or if you need to, standing. Uh, but please no lying down unless absolutely necessary due to pain. And there will be a fair amount of time, maybe a lot, available for discussion about serenity, insight, their practice, and various considerations that I'll, I'll raise during the day. So in my mind, this is a mix of study, practice, and uh, exploration. So to um, begin, I'd like to introduce our, our topic or theme. There are many, many ways in early Buddhism for discussing the path. And then over the centuries, these have been um, elaborated on, reframed, developed in a variety of ways. I'll use as my primary reference, as far as the teachings go, the early level of teachings rather than the later developments. And then, of course, the other key reference is our own practice, experience, and our learnings from our 
practice and mindful experience. So in the early teachings, one of the ways of understanding path, and one that has been picked up on in various ways in later Theravada Buddhism, uh, which developed somewhere around a thousand years after the Buddha, around the time Mahayana was developing. Uh, This was uh, highlighted in various ways and now comes down to us in the U.S. in certain forms. In the early perspective, path, and we'll focus on some perspectives on path later in the day, but in the early perspective, path can be seen as having two aspects, not two paths to choose from, but one path with a serenity aspect and an insight aspect. The serenity, which is my preferred translation, you'll also see it translated tranquility and calming, involves the settling of mind when the inner world, mind, consciousness, heart, thought, emotion, when that settles, slows, relaxes, calms. That's the samatha aspect of path and practice. And with this aspect of path emerges more calm, quiet, stability, and clarity. So there's always a relationship between path and practice and then what emerges or grows out of path and practice. And this is the case for today's two main terms, serenity and insight. And then the insight aspect of path is essentially about investigation. One of the early terms for this is investigation of phenomena, investigations of dhammas, the natural stuff, of, of life, especially life as can be experienced mindfully. And these two go together. How they go together will be um, the second part of the focus for the second part of this morning. But right now I just want to sketch very briefly this notion that path has the settling calming aspect and the investigating, inquiring aspect. And these bear fruits of calmness, serenity, tranquility, and what is sometimes called insight, vipassana, and also called very frequently in the early teachings, knowing and seeing. Um, Actually, the phrase 
knowing and seeing. Or sometimes it's a compound term, knowing, seeing. It's without an and. That appears much more frequently than the term vipassana or insight. Though nowadays we we hear the word vipassana more frequently, which has to do with historical developments primarily of the last century. But essentially they're synonyms. Knowing, seeing, insight are basically talking about the same thing, both practice and fruits of practice. And in the early teachings, there's no clear separation between uh, serenity as practice and serenity as fruits. And same with vipassana. Vipassana as an aspect of practice, not necessarily the practice, but an essential aspect of practice and vipassana as the fruits, the actual uh, glimpses, the ahas, the little awakenings, the lessons, the learnings, the insights that come with well-balanced practice. So those are the two things we'll be focusing on today in a few different ways. And it's crucial to put this in the, keep it in the context of spiritual practice. Sometimes we can pick up on practices and get a little caught in the mechanics of how to practice which is tends to be a big concern in America, wanting to know how to do it. It's a, a culture, big cultural piece Americans bring to this. How do I do it? And sometimes we forget why we do it. What's the purpose? But it's impossible to do it right without keeping in mind what it's for because otherwise right can just become obsession or over-fastidiousness or becoming mechanical and so on. The, The purpose or end, the aim of serenity and insight or shamatha, samatha in Pali and vipassana, which are the Buddha's terms. The purpose is liberation. Liberation from greed, hatred, fear, and confusion. And such like things that contaminate and distress human life. So let me conclude this by reading um, a brief quote from a discourse in the middle-length sayings.
after talking about someone having developed right view and cultivating the Noble Eightfold Path, the sutta says these two things, serenity and insight, occur in one yoked evenly together. One fully understands by direct knowledge those things that should be fully understood by direct knowledge. One abandons by direct knowledge those things that should be abandoned by direct knowledge. One develops by direct knowledge those things that should be developed by direct knowledge. One realizes by direct knowledge those things that should be realized by direct knowledge. You might notice there were four of those corresponding to the four ennobling truths. But back to serenity and insight, as the path develops, in this passage, as the path develops, these two are yoked evenly together. And out of that emerges um, the kind of direct knowledge. Here the term direct knowledge is one of the synonyms for wisdom, the kind of knowing that overcomes ignorance and through replacing ignorance, not knowing, with true knowing, direct experiential knowing, then the fabrication of egoism in forms like greed, hatred, anger, fear, envy, boredom, excitement, confusion, don't occur. That's that's classically the the purpose of practice in the original Buddhist teachings. And as this passage points out, samatha vipassana or Serenity and insight play a key role. Let's do a uh, simple guided meditation that will consider these two aspects of path. And then we can talk about it a bit afterwards. So please organize yourself in a comfortable, suitable meditation posture.
we can use posture to cultivate settling of body and mind. Now that we're seated, let's give attention to various aspects of our sitting posture and use this for the sake of a settling, relaxing, and calming. Please bring attention to the sit bones in the buttocks. Allow the weight of the body to rest in these areas of the buttocks. and relax into these areas. If there's any tightness in the buttocks, let it soften so that you're resting on your cushion rather than struggling with it. Let your awareness move down your thighs, softening the thighs, the hamstrings, the knees, the calves, down into the feet and toes. If you're on a chair, let your feet soften into the floor. Whatever you're sitting or kneeling on, let the lower body soften. In a healthy posture, a balanced posture, the head is upright. You might imagine a silken thread coming out of the crown, reaching up to the clouds or the sky. Very gently, lifting the skull and the body, not pushing with muscles, more of an energetic buoyancy. Let the shoulders loosen 
so they they hang softly to the sides, neither pulled back nor drooping forward. A little trick that can help is to push back very gently with the backs of the arms, the area that tends to be a little bit flabby or floppy. Don't pull back with the shoulders. But if the back of the arms reach gently backwards, it tends to help us have a proper position for the shoulders. And when the shoulders hang loosely, check the area of the tailbone. The area of the tailbone can soften. If it's jutting backwards, you might want to rock forward gently, slightly on the hip. But if the tailbone is pulled forward with effort and feels tight, let it soften downward. And with with each of these little adjustments, Other areas are changed as well. So we we try not to do anything drastic, but bring attention and gently relaxing different spots that tend to be tight or problematic. When the tailbone is soft and relaxed, neither pushed back or pulled forward, the pubic area also softens. Sometimes we get in a habit of gripping, and that can show up in the pubic area. If the tailbone is soft and the shoulders loose, the head buoyant, we don't have to worry much about sitting up straight. But the body will be naturally upright. 
without a lot of effort. Please check the back of the neck, rising out of the shoulders and up into the skull. Generally, a very gentle stretch up the back of the neck and into the skull is helpful for finding a good head position. Just a light stretch up into the skull. To avoid a head that's tilted back or a chin that juts forward. With the right amount of stretch, the face has a very gentle downward tilt. And the chin doesn't protrude or jut forward. If the chin juts forward, it tilts the neck back and pinches. So softening along the neck, allowing a downward tilt of the face, and simply relaxing the jaw. The teeth may be held together, but there's no biting or gripping. The jaw soft all the way up to where it meets the skull, just below the ears. The forehead and temples are also soft. The eyeballs relaxed. There's nothing to stare at. releasing tension around the eye sockets, softening the cheekbones. Lips closed but not tight. The tongue is soft in the bottom of the mouth. Especially back where it attaches.
the tongue is soft, let the roof of the mouth soften upward, creating or at least imagining a little bit of an opening up of the space in the mouth. As tongue and mouth soften, let the softening gradually slide down your throat, releasing tension in the throat. Let the softening drop downward into the chest cavity. Both front and back. Down into the abdominal cavity, front and back. down into the pelvis between the pubic area and the tailbone. And the hands rest quietly wherever they're out of trouble. And then just sit in a posture that's more settled, quiet, and calm. When the body is more settled, the mind is more settled.
we can approach posture with an attitude of settling and calming to foster serenity in body and mind. And we can approach posture as inquiry and investigate, for example. Let your awareness move through the body. You might review the areas we just covered. And as awareness checks out the buttocks, hips, thighs, legs, back, shoulders, arms, neck, and so on, notice where there's tension, tightness, discomfort, pain. Let your attention rest on these areas, just taking in that there's some tightness, something stiff or maybe aches. Continue noticing aspects of the posture that are tight, uncomfortable, or even painful. Give attention to these areas with the implied question, what's going on here? If there are aches or tightness, there are causes and conditions for the aches and tightness. Sometimes the causes and conditions are long-term. Sometimes they're quite immediate. Sometimes they're somewhere in between. Maybe something that happened yesterday or some behaviors from the past week. So take note of areas of tightness and soreness.
and let your innate natural intelligence start to put together what's going on. Sometimes we notice holding ourself or part of our body rigidly. demanding or forcing something. That would be an immediate condition. Sometimes we know that there's a long-term injury or a consequence of aging. And sometimes we notice something like a sore back And then recall behaviors, recent behaviors that contributed to or even caused the soreness. Is it the kind of soreness or ache that will pass fairly quickly? without damage? Or is there some habit or unhealthy behavior at work? So please use the body as an opportunity for inquiry. Inquiring into the health and well-being of the body. Looking, inquiring, noticing, digesting, direct experiential information, which doesn't require a lot of thinking.
please sit a while longer, either exploring the health of the sitting body, or if you like, just follow the breathing in and out.
seems to me that was a pretty simple, uh, straightforward, maybe very familiar even, um, way to work on the settling and calming, but also use posture for some investigation into what's happening with the body and watching, looking what's happening and maybe recognizing the causes, the conditions, the influences for what's ever happening. Any thoughts or comments? Or insights? Yeah. This goes to the heart of my question. I do a lot of Tai Chi, which is moving meditation, which is uh, awareness of the body. So I guess my question is, in your perspective, does the does the body always mirror the mind, or does the mind I'd say it's both. But um, in, in terms of practice, especially meditative practices, and which can include Tai Chi, I think, mind is where intention and attention operate. So... Body-mind, it seems to me, reflect each other. But there's this aspect of mind we can call attention, which is related to mindfulness, but is not exactly equivalent. But attention can choose to pay attention. And when that happens, there's a direction, a directing Just like in Tai Chi, mind directs energy. So it's not just the movement. And breath can get involved and so on. I don't know much about Tai Chi, but from what I've heard. So so mind gets a special prominence because attention and the skillful use of attention is at heart what we've got to work with. That's... That's the key piece in spiritual practices. But for example, in in Buddhist understanding, body and mind are inseparable. And um, they're both, you know, aspects of a bigger whole, the living organism. And And early Buddhism does not argue which is primary. Our culture now assumes matter is primary. And some spiritual traditions claim that mind is primary. But Buddhism doesn't take a stand on such debates. But observes that experientially you can't really have one without the other. And that can be an aspect of investigation when we do this. Whatever's going on with the body, 
there's a mind experiencing it, maybe influencing it, being influenced. Like if there's this ache in the back, what's going on? It's not just the back, but it's not just mental either. Does that respond to your question? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes knowledge comes by way of sensation, but without awareness, there's no way to unwrap. So just... Yep, yep. And for me, especially when we talk about Vipassana, the inquiry has got to be ongoing. Um, it's tends to be dangerous when we think we've figured something out, then we then we hold on to it. And a partial, maybe a valuable lesson gets stuck and then can't deepen until we let go. Yes? Just noticing um, earlier in the week I had a gastrointestinal virus Realizing how little I notice comfort. I mean, you mentioned comfort in the body last night, and it just reminded me that I certainly notice discomfort more. I think many of us do, and a lot of aversion around it. And the flip side of grasping why to be comfortable again, but not. But once I reach the point of body comfort, not really being as aware of that. Mm-hmm. As I get older, I'm more and more grateful. <laughs> I do a lot of stuff like cutting firewood that can be hard on the muscles, especially if I get too enthusiastic or try to do too much. But um, appreciating when the body is tired, but in a, a way that didn't go too far. And then it can rest and feels pretty good. And then other times when I overdid it. But, but yeah, appreciating the comfort, especially when it's healthy, comfortable. Question about inquiry. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, sure, as a culture, we don't know how, how, how. Is the inquiry more what, what, or is it why, um, how much um, direction do we give mm-hmm. an inquiry? Well, the, f- the four ennobling truths or realities can give a good framework for that inquiry. So the first is more what, what's going on? And then second is what are the causes and conditions of what's going on? So it's a kind of a how question or it's a where question. Whatever is going on, where is it coming from or what is conditioning it? And then third is can be phrased as a why question. What's the purpose or end of this? What's the meaning 
And then four is more of a how in terms of response. But I, I think our culture is very concerned with how, but without the big picture. So it's a, a fairly ignorant how. And very results-oriented, but not not very clear why we would want such results. So to fit the how within a, a bigger framework, which in Buddhism is liberation from from greed, hatred, fear, confusion. So if if we actively inquire, if like we choose to use the four ennobling truths as a framework for inquiry and just do so regularly, we can shift fairly fluidly among the four. But as practice, sometimes it's good to focus on one, at least for a while, five, ten minutes and shift. But then later, you can just kind of move as the as it's internalized. So looking at the second one, we'd be looking sort of as what's the conditioning around? Mm-hmm. Yes, and both immediate and past, mental, physical. Like I have areas of tightness in my body that I know are long-term uh, it's a product of some habits and um, bad po- meditation posture. When I force myself into a full lotus too much, too long, when I wasn't able to do it properly, so it was a an improper full lotus, and that that caused some some things which are largely worked out, but there's still some areas that will tighten up first. Or in the immediate, causes and conditions are just other aspects of the body. It's tight here because there's this kind of overall gripping. Soften that and that area and others relax. And sometimes it's there's a mental attitude at work. If if my impatience, for example, is at work, which could be lingering impatience from what I was doing half an hour ago or an hour ago, but I notice in myself an impatience that leads to pushing that will affect the body. So one can inquire into mental and physical conditions, present and recent past or sometimes more distant past. And I'm I'm not suggesting we do a lot of thinking, but just paying attention. And, And, you know, things will gradually click. And the click may come with some thoughts, but then we don't have to sit there and churn in thought. So thoughts don't have to be the enemy, but nor are they the purpose. 
And by the way, uh, the four ennobling truths are of one good framework, but early Buddhism has others similar, but there's a five and a seven. So if you get bored with four, you can... Yes? Oh, uh, I just want to extend my question on mental imitation. How do you like, trick the mind into when you recognize it and what do you do with that? Oh, don't be impatient. Right. Yeah, telling myself not to. If you just, first of all, just, okay, feel the impatience for a bit. What's its energy? My impatience feels like, you know, a a kind of pushing forward and trying to force things a bit. And so I feel that kind of, in me, it feels like this kind of pushing forward. So I just rest more, rest back in the hips. I find that in my case, your case may be similar or somewhat different, that when there's impatience, I'm tending to lean forward. So for me, it helps just to rest back in the sit bones, let the back, the tailbone soften again, and I might check on my shoulder. Or is my, you know, a lot of people drive like this or are at their computers like this. And it's kind of, one, it screws up your neck and sinuses as well. But two, it becomes this habit of always kind of sticking ourselves forward, chasing the future. So you just relax back into a more balanced, softer space. And then find out, um, oh, this is healthier. And if, if you notice back to comfort, this feels better. And I, that things feel good is not um, always the best uh, thing to look for. But if it feels good, if it's calmer, more balanced, then you know for yourself, oh, this this is probably healthier than impatience. For me, impatience is, it's got a bit of the heat of anger, dissatisfaction, aversion. And whereas to relax that is cooler. When we switched, um, or you suggested the point to go maybe to follow the breath, and then uh, I've been aware of the body and healings in the body and tension. Then I moved to doing awareness of breathing, and I immediately felt tension. Tension? Tension, yes. So then at that point, then, and I thought, you know, this is really good. So I moved back to the the awareness. General awareness of the body and, and where our tensions were located in the body. But I was wondering if I should have stayed with that uh, tension that I felt when I moved 
I'm not going to say you should. You could. And, you know, inquire a bit what happened. You know, what, what changed. Because it's possible. Again, this isn't a should, but it's possible to seamlessly shift attention from one thing to another. But sometimes it's not seamless. And then what happened? What changed? What, what, and it's, it's partly how did you shift to the breath? intentional. The Pali, standard Pali, is loba, greed, sometimes raga, lust, or passion, always dosa, which is hatred, uh, koda, anger, uh, very rarely takes the second place, and the third is always moha, mistakenly translated often as Ignorance, but ignorance is a different word, avicca. So that's just standard. That's the language of the suttas. Greed, hatred, delusion as the three broad categories of defilement. What pollutes mind, heart, character. But Boy, is fear a big deal in our lives today. So I just can't not include it. And delusion is seems hard for to get a grasp on. So I often I'm putting in confusion often instead of delusion. And if one could say that fear and confusion are two kinds of delusion. So it's just a way to use use words that maybe are a little more accessible. And then I'll often throw in envy, pride, excitement, boredom. But if greed, hatred, delusion works for you, just... But if you're in America, there's probably some fear lurking. <laughs> My question is self view part of the delusion? Yes. Hmm? Um, is self delusion part, uh, is self view or belief in self that there's a real self somewhere, is that part of delusion? Yes. Delusion's a pretty big category. <laughs> There was um, some other speaker that had an idea. I like words, so I, but he said, you know, instead of uh, greed, uh, 
hatred delusion. He said uh, demanding, denying delusion, or distraction actually. Demanding, denying distraction. Mm-hmm. I, I really like the distraction part. And to me, they all kind of fold into being at a level being distractions. Is that a Sounds like, I, I mean, linguistically, it's not literal translation, but practically, it's useful because greed and desire tend to have a demanding and expecting aspect. Anger, hatred. I'm le- a little less comfortable with denial because. Denial can also function more as a delusion. To deny something exists. So denial's a little, doesn't fit as well to my mind, but there is, because it's, it's more against. You're not just denying, you're against something. The, the context, I think, in the denying, how I think about it is, um, I'm demanding of what I want, I'm demanding. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the, it's a little cute, you know, DDD, so, but distraction works. I think demanding and distraction work well, denying, but again, if it's, as long as it's useful in practice, and it's partly how you hear the word denying or how somebody else Here's the word, denying. They're verbs. Mm-hmm. So they're behavior as opposed to a noun, so it gives you a different feeling of what a person does when they feel mm-hmm. it. I like that. Yeah, I agree. That's useful. That. Yes? Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, boredom as a defilement? I kind of think we most of us live in an overstimulated world world and life and it seems to me when I um, I, I kind of think when I get um, sleepy or tired I get confused if I'm bored or if I'm just fatigued then I just need to rest and a lot of times in a retreat I'll spend the first two days almost sleeping and it feels like I'm bored because I'm sitting there, but I feel like I'm just so fatigued that I need to rest. Sometimes I like to go to a retreat and sleep two days before the retreat starts, but you know, I never do that, obviously. So comment about boredom and as a defilement, how that creeps up and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. So the question is about boredom as a defilement. Yeah, another you know, it's an important inquiry. What's the difference between being bored and being fatigued or sleepy? So they're both about energy, but one is much more choice. There's, you know, with a lot of defilements, there's a pretense that they're happening to me. I'm not doing it. As, as you pointed out with the, a moment ago about demanding, denying, distracting. 
to label it so it's kind of admitting it's something I'm doing. But often with defilements broadly and boredom in particular, it's like it happens to me. I'm somehow an innocent victim of this. But actually we choose to be bored. Whereas with fatigue, there's just the system is run down. It needs to rejuvenate. Whether sometimes through rest, sometimes through healthy movement, uh, proper diet, whatever. And it's not always obvious. But especially like in my case, this is not quite about boredom, but it's in the ballpark. My upbringing and personality are very much have, you know, doing things and getting things done have been a big deal in my life. And then using caffeine to help get things done, that, that makes it even harder to sort out. If, if we've used stuff like caffeine or sugar or other stimulations to stimulate us, then it's harder to tell when actually what's needed is rest. And I'd say this is a pretty overstimulated society. So we're all touched by that, more or less. So back to boredom. To me, boredom is basically lack of interest, which it's in the delusion group, I think, because lack of interest means lack of intelligence, lack of creativity. We're bored because we're not capable of looking around and seeing something useful and meaningful right here and now. And then again back to distracting and then maybe we're daydreaming about something better or more entertaining or more exciting. But it's like all the defilements, it's a karma, it's an action arising out of an intention. And here, it's the intention is more of a to not pay attention, to not look very carefully, to not, not find something of interest or an, a perspective that's interesting. Especially, and in the context of Dhamma practice, interesting from a Dhamma perspective. You know, our, our society uses conflict and crudity to be, to create stimulation, but that's not very dominant. But to me, cultivating a, a practice of inquiry and investigation keeps things interesting, but in a, a dominant way. And that can be both some study and reading, thought and reflection, and then just looking and contemplating.
and finding a healthy mix of all three. But boredom is good to bring up with when we were talking about insight because there's not going to be insight with boredom except when we start to look into the boredom and then start to see its nature. I have a question kind of continuing on what you're talking about. This fall I've sort of emptied a lot of things out of my life and I've been doing more meditation and yoga and so all the things you're talking about are emptying out and not reading too much, not novels, no not a lot of the stimulation, but I'm noticing in the last couple of days especially that I do feel like there needs to be some things coming in to take the place some I can't think of a word besides healthy right now, but something that is fulfilling and having positive influences and then having a little bit of I mean I do have books about Dharma practice and I do read those but I can't do that all day, every day, mm-hmm. sort of looking for, I don't know, some guidance on that, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you said this fall there's been a lot of emptying out, and does that mean you're feeling drained and worn out? No, or? I've been feeling pretty elated. I mean, I've been spending a lot, I've had the freedom with my, my son went to college, so I've had uh-huh. a lot of freedom in my life to do things differently, to get up at five and spend hours of time meditating and contemplating, which is lovely, but I do notice, especially in the evenings, that, well, I think I've been picking up my laptop a little bit more and just kind of, uh, that isn't exactly it either, but I mean, reading novels every night just felt like it was filling too many spaces, it was a distraction. Mm-hmm. The same way that watching TV would be. I don't watch the TV, but I mean, reading, so I stopped reading the novels for the same reason because right. I want to have this space inside, but I just don't have. I feel like there's a little bit, and maybe it's not correct that there's too much space, but sometimes it feels like there's just a little bit too much space. Well, you know, all I can do is make some educated guesses like. Sometimes by the end of the day, you know, your energy level isn't what it was earlier. So take, take that into consideration. What's, what's a healthy way to be present that's nurturing? And maybe it's not so much whether you read a novel or not, but it's how you read it. One can read great literature as distraction, or one can read it as an inquiry into the human condition, use the novel to reflect on one's own life, one's world, what's important. So it's, I'm not saying you should read novels. I'm just saying the issue isn't as simple as read them or not. But what we read and how we how we read. Same with watching movies and things like that. Uh, but if you're 
if your life allows, as yours sounds like, um, a lot of space for meditation and contemplation. And if you're able to do that in the ways you find fulfilling, then maybe the end of day is just quiet time and knit <laughs> or carve spoons or, you know, my mind isn't as sharp at that time of day. So something, for me, some kind of doing, but quiet and simple. Bake a cake. Let's take a 10-minute break or so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.